So if I just begin just with an introduction. The Buddha was not particularly, I think, interested in producing perfect meditators. I think the Buddha's passion was guiding people in ways of flourishing, ways of being a creative, embodied, engaged human being, deeply grounded both in ethics and in a well-trained heart and mind. And according to the Buddha, the art of human flourishing lies in that cultivation of a well-trained heart and mind. What does that look like? What does a well-trained heart and mind look like? In one of the discourses, the Buddha speaks, I mean, the Buddha speaks about a well-trained heart and mind throughout all the discourses. But in one of the suttas, the Buddha says that a person with a well-trained mind will think the thoughts they want to think when they want to think them, and will not think the thoughts they don't choose to think. They are called a master of the courses of thought. So how does that land with you? Does that look like your mind? (laughs) Of all of the thoughts that you have already thought today, possibly thousands, how many did you choose? How many were helpful? How many were needed? He also speaks about this well-trained mind as being a mind, a heart that is infused with kindness, with compassion, and with non-clinging. So it's not just about the level of thought activity. It is really about the landscape of this well-trained heart. So the person with a well-trained heart and mind can see things as they actually are, in the light of understanding, in the light of insight, of knowing all things to be changing, unstable, of knowing about our vulnerability as human beings, that we are vulnerable to aging, to sickness, to dying, to loss, clearly understanding that there is no independent pilot in the cockpit, no independent self-existence, that all things are empty of independent self-existence. A person with a well-trained heart and mind is really a person who has stopped arguing with the unarguables. They've stopped the narratives about, you know, it's not fair, it, should, it shouldn't be happening, uh, it shouldn't happen to me, um, you know, I shouldn't be vulnerable, I shouldn't lose things, I shouldn't age, I shouldn't become ill. They've stopped arguing with the unarguables. So when we have some, I think, some picture, no matter how impossible it sounds, the Buddha's teaching was that this is not impossible that there are very clear pathways for cultivating a mind that is a friend. 
you know, he once said that, you know, who is my enemy? And he said, my mind is my enemy. He said, who is my friend? He said, my mind is my friend. He said, I can think of no one thing that can do so much harm as an untrained mind. But that once understood, I can think of no one thing that is a greater friend than a well-trained mind and heart. And the entire pathway, the entire meditative pathway in the Buddhist tradition is really dedicated to that cultivation. A mind that is a friend, a mind that feels to be a refuge, a mind that we don't need to be anxious about. All of the Buddhist teaching was rooted actually in looking at his own mind you know, and really listening to the stories of other people's minds and knowing how many of those stories were quite unique to individuals, <clears throat> but also the kind of universal story of what the mind can do and what the mind heart can be. So it's a teaching of aspiration. It's a teaching of possibility that really begins in the classroom of where we are right now. This is not a transcendent pathway. Well, in some ways, I mean, one of the Buddha's kind of um, perhaps unique gifts that he offered at his time was instead of endeavoring to transcend the body, transcend the mind, transcend the world, he actually spoke about transcending struggle, transcending distress, transcending the causes of struggle. So in looking at his own mind and looking at the minds of others, he really did spot that there were probably many, many things that contribute to an untrained mind. You know? habit, you know, he really looked at what gets in the way, what gets in the way of this well-trained heart and mind. And that's, of course, an investigation for us all. You know, he saw many things. He saw the power of habit, the power of reactivity, um, the power of confusion, um, the power of fear. But he kind of spotted two, or named, two primary threads which vandalize the well-being of our hearts and minds. And one of those threads found in the universal story are what are called the veiling factors. Sometimes we hear them described as the hindrances, but more accurately, the veiling patterns. The veiling patterns that are at the root of all of our psychological um, and emotional storms. You know, the veiling patterns of the craving uh, for sensual pleasure, the, the aversion, the ill will pattern, the agitation, worry pattern, the, the dullness pattern, and the pattern of doubt. He really saw that these five primary patterns, very universal patterns, certainly have the power to sabotage well-being and to sabotage the, the clarity and the spaciousness and the easefulness of our hearts and minds. He said the other pattern that really tends to lead to so much distress is what in the Buddhist tradition is called papancha. 
the proliferation of thinking rooted in underlying tendencies and patterns that clouds our, our capacity to see things as they actually are. And he named the, the threads, the emotional threads of Papancha. You know, he says, that there's all the stories that are built upon craving. You know, and you see the relationship between Papancha or proliferation and the five patterns I spoke about early, earlier. He spoke about the pattern of uh, proliferation rooted in craving. That's a big story, isn't it? You know, what I want, what I need, leaning forward into the better moment, the over-planning, the rehearsing, the, yeah, the craving for sensual pleasure, all the ways I'm going to rearrange the conditions of my world so as to maximize pleasure and minimize the unpleasant. He says there's aversion-based proliferation, aversion-based papancha. The many stories we can have about what we don't like, what we don't want, what we need to get rid of, how we need to improve ourselves, um, you know, the things that are, you know, detestable, to be avoided, yeah, annihilated, all of those stories about the people we struggle with, the events we struggle with. He says there's anxiety-based papancha fear-based papancha, bio papancha. And this, of course, is all of the narratives about you know, how we worry, what we're apprehensive about, what we're fearful of. Um, this is also a big story. He says there's a, a level of proliferation which he refers to as ditty papancha, the proliferation of views. You know, turn on your television, turn on your radio. And there are many, so many stories rooted in views, aren't there, about how the world is, you know, how politics are, you know, how so, you know, our society is, how other people are. There are a lot of views. And the last of the threads of Papancha that he spoke about is uh, Mano Papancha, and that's the story of me. The story of me. The story about who I am, who I used to be, who I want to be, what I like about myself, what I don't like about myself, um, the things that are in me that are acceptable, the things that are unacceptable, my history, my future, my present. Uh, you know, I have a really, actually quite a clear sense that probably all of the other streams of proliferation have their roots in this one, have their roots in this one. So when the Buddha speaks about nibbana or awakening, one of the synonyms of nibbana is nipapancha, the mind that has ceased to proliferate, the mind that has stepped out of the story narrative telling rooted in these underlying patterns of reactivity and identity and selfing. So today I want to look at the landscape of samadhi both what it is on the cushion and what it is off the cushion. I think when, uh, how many of you are familiar with this word samadhi, by the way? A lot, good, great. So when we think about samadhi, I think one of the ways that people think about it is concentration. But samadhi is something much wider and bigger than concentration. 
concentration can be skillful or unskillful. It can be ethical or unethical. And concentration often operates on a kind of command system. You know, I have to concentrate. You know, I have to pay attention. You know, you may have memories from your education, you know, of people shouting at you to concentrate and to pay attention. You know? it, it's often this kind of, it can be rather forced. Um, samadhi is much bigger than concentration. Sometimes when people think about samadhi, particularly people who've been on this path for some time, will immediately associate samadhi with the jhanas or absorption states of meditative absorptions. This is one branch of samadhi that can be very powerful, um, very helpful, but not necessarily for everyone. And I think there's always a question of how much samadhi is needed? How much samadhi is needed? And the other question is, what is samadhi in the service of? What is it really in the service of? When we look at the wider landscape of samadhi, you see it's so frequently talked about in the discourses. And we get the short version. You know, you read in the discourses that, you know, a practitioner goes to the roots of a tree or to a forest or to an empty hut. They sit down, they cross their legs, they close their eyes, they enter into the first, second, third, fourth state of absorption, the jhanas. Um, they kind of turn that power of, of samadhi towards understanding, towards insight. They get up, open their eyes, kind of brush their hands and say, well, I've done what needs to be done. I'm awake. That all happens in one sitting. <laughs> um, as I say, that's, that's quite the short version. And it's really not the story of most people's meditative practice, which is usually not linear, where there may be moments of samadhi, there may be moments of distractedness, moments where you feel like you're getting somewhere, moments where you feel like you've backtracked and you've regressed and you've entirely lost the plot, but it is not linear. And yet, you know, recognizing that, I think we cannot dispute the reality of how often samadhi is mentioned in the text, how often jhanas are mentioned in the text, and they are worth considering. Really, why, why is this given so much value? Um, there, uh, just, I'm just going to just briefly touch upon these absorption states because they're often kind of, I think, a bit mysterious to people. When you see the absorption states mentioned or listen to them taught, taught absorption states are brought about by having a very singular focus. It might be the breath, might be an object, might be an image, and that focusing is developed and deepened until the mind is absorbed into the quality or into the object of focus, in which point the object of the focus, the breath, the image, the, the sound, the contact points begin to fade away, body and mind begin to disappear from consciousness, 
and there is an absorption into the qualities of joyfulness, of happiness, of peace, of equanimity. There's another four states of absorption that I talked about. I will, I will touch upon this more as we go along in the weekend. But there's a question here because, you know, I, I've taught for a long time now. I've done a lot of samadhi practice. I have colleagues and friends who've done equal amounts of samadhi practice. And what is clear to me is that at least the absorptions um, have a sort of, uh, there's something about temperament that people can do an exactly the same amount of practice, have exactly the same intentions, make exactly the same efforts, and some people will go into these absorptions and some people will not. And so it doesn't mean one has more insight than the other. People can have exactly the same amount of insight. I certainly have colleagues and friends who've been practicing as long as I have. Some have got, are very absorption prone, I might say, and others have never had a single meditative absorption in their entire life, and they're incredibly wise and skillful people. So I would not put too much value. I would not want to exaggerate the absorptions in the samadhi landscape. Um, it doesn't, I also don't want to devalue it, because there's also always a question of how much samadhi is helpful, how much samadhi is needed. Um, so some, uh, but there's a new thinking about absorptions. And I, I think there's a new thinking about jhanas, where they're not always seen about these meditative experiences that have beginnings and endings, you know, that work for some and don't work for others. I think that some of the more recent investigation and reflections and exploration that's going on tends to think more of the jhanas as qualities of heart and mind, seeds of potentiality within all of us, that we all have the capacity to cultivate the seed of joyfulness. We all have the capacity to cultivate and to bring to fruition the seeds of happiness, of peace, of equanimity. And I think some of the more more recent thinking is, well, yeah, it can be great to have fantastic meditation experiences, you know, big hit, big high, but there's an ending, you know? So their, their value is can be profound and useful, but as experiences, like all experiences, they pass away. And there might be more value in actually thinking of these qualities as abidings, as seeds of potentiality that the mind learns to abide in. And that is a mind of friendliness. That is a well-trained heart and mind. There is a tendency, I think, particularly, no, there is a tendency to make separate these strands of meditative development, that there's one pathway of samadhi and there's one pathway of insight. In reality, these are deeply interwoven and deeply intertwined. They need to be. I think the Buddha was quite unique in his time of using this well-cultivated, this well-trained heart and mind to investigate and to develop insight. Okay. So, I want to talk about what is samadhi. Oh, I 
So there's several, several areas I want to, to explore today. One is the area of really uh, investigating what do we mean by samadhi? What does it look like? Um, why is it so highly valued in the Buddhist teaching? To begin to explore a little bit what a well-trained heart and mind actually looks like. To begin to look at the benefits of samadhi. And also to begin to reflect on what samadhi looks like as a life practice and not just a meditation practice. You know, my own sense is that if we don't cultivate samadhi in our lives off the cushion, our chances of cultivating it on the cushion are quite small. So this is very much also a life practice as we move through the world of so many sensory impressions, so many possibilities for disunification, for fragmentation, for distractedness. How do we actually cultivate samadhi off the cushion, enabling us to deepen that on the cushion and in our formal practice? So those are some of the domains that I want to cover this weekend. And I think it would be quite useful at this point that we actually have a sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.